Mel Tempest is known as a fitness business influencer, hands-on health club owner, ebook author, and presenter. Mel has known to be controversial, challenges the status quo, and lives outside the square. Her skill set is current on trend, savvy, and in demand. Her primary goal is to get more health club owners moving towards innovation, technology, and social media success. Her own success comes through tough and humble beginnings. Mel Tempest now presents to you the Gym Owners Podcast. More than just the business of fitness. Proudly supported by National Fitness Business Alliance. Good afternoon. It's Mel Tempest from the Gym Owners Business Podcast. Today I'm speaking to Bobby Capiccio, who is an internationally recognized speaker and author, widely known for his dynamic and provocative style. His reputation for providing individuals with the sciences, tools, information, and inspiration to channel their aspirations into higher levels of achievement made. Bobby is one of the most sought-after speakers in the industry. Hello, Bobby. How you going, Mel? I'm absolutely awesome. We've had a fantastic start to our podcast today, and I'm really looking forward to this. Well, it's the intro. You can't possibly screw that up. The pressure's all on from this point forward. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> so let's get this all underway. So our podcast today touches on reluctant selling. What is reluctant selling? Reluctant selling is a bit of a dichotomy. It is holding the space for another individual where you are completely detached from the outcome, yet simultaneously completely committed to the person and the process of leading that individual through a series of decisions that is aligned with what they truly want. So it's more about solving than it is about traditionally selling. Awesome. So now, you and I had a chit-chat yesterday before the podcast, and we spoke about a lot of different things. And one of the things I spoke about um, was my frustrations uh, in the industry. So let me just ask you um, a, a little bit of a question here. So let's go right back to the basics because a lot of the club owners don't have it right. Now, they let's get rid of the scripts. I, I want to walk into a club. I'm there for a purpose. Um, you know, you're at the desk. Educate me so I can give the client what they want and not bore them with all the standard sales talk. Well, there's a couple of levels to unpack with that. Let, let, me, let me just jump back a little bit if I can, Mel. Because that's, that's a really big question. And I know you know that's a big question. I don't know that everybody listening to this understands the magnitude of what you just asked. And I don't want to make scripts wrong. I mean, imagine this. You know, every time you have been in cinema and tears have been flowing down your face and you're choking back your tears and you're inspired and at some level even a little bit transformed, what you're watching started out with a script. So scripts are not in and of themselves bad, but the question becomes, why is it that studios will pay someone millions of dollars as opposed to just hiring me or you or anybody listening to this call? Because if you wanted to break it down to the domain of the script, the script has nothing to do with the actor. It has nothing to do with what's going on in the screen. It is the domain of the writer. And anybody can master a script the way an A-lister, 
and or a top level actor can. And if you don't believe me, hand somebody a script. It could be anything. It could be a sales script. It could be a film script. It could be a line from a book. And just say to them, repeat this line exactly after me, exactly the way I said it. Not meaning inflection and tonality, but just the grammar, just the words that are coming out of my mouth, duplicate them. Most people, I would say 99% of the people, maybe even more than that, could repeat back to you verbatim what you just said. So the difference between that line and a script is just intention and time. So if anybody can recite a script, why is it that so few people can be at the top of their industry as a performer? Why is it? I live in LA, the frustrated visionary capital of the world. And so many people come here who are extremely talented, yet they're always striving at never arriving at the fulfillment of their dream. Why is that? Because it requires a very specialized talent. One of my favorite acting coaches was an individual by the name of Stanford Meisner. And he said that acting, and this is so contrary to what most people believe, but it is brutally true. Acting is living truthfully in an imaginary circumstance. So the best actors that you see that move you emotionally and touch our lives are those who don't act. They show up authentically. The situation is imagined. The response is not. And a lot of that comes from being present. So a script, okay, great, great start. But somebody at some point has to embody and become that content, not simply regurgitate that because we don't respond to automatons. And the way that we, and what we focus on being important, if it is verbatim based on a script, are the same interpersonal dynamics that disconnect us, that take our anxiety of getting every single word right rather than being present. And we transfer that physiologically to the other individual. And when there's anxiety, there is no trust. And when there is no trust, there is no likability or connection. And when likability and connection is absent, there is no decision because the part of the brain that governs fight or flight, the amygdala, is active. And people just simply cannot decide based on reason and their best interests. So that's my answer to the script. When somebody walks into the front door, I think a lot of times, you know, I've been I've been sitting in uh, sales meetings, and it talks about building rapport. Well, how do you connect with that person the second they walk in? What do you look for? What do you say? What do you ask them? And I, I kind of I, I kind of look at that like going out to a bar. See, so if you, if you want to take a look at selling, selling is an interpersonal dynamic. It, it's a relationship. It's more than a relationship. Because the definition of the word rapport that I like most is from O'Connor and McDermott, NLP masters. And they say that rapport is a relationship, listen to this, this is powerful, of positive responsiveness between two individuals. So it's not just being in relationship for the sake of being in relationship. It's creating a relationship where something happens, a generative moment emerges in the space between two individuals. There's something decided. There's an action. There's a decision that emanates from that interaction. And you know, if you think about comparing a sales situation to everyday life, 
Imagine sitting down at a bar and someone comes up to you and they know all their lines. They have their script. They're really well rehearsed and you can tell they've delivered those lines a hundred times before. And they know exactly what to ask to get into quote unquote rapport with you. Well, if the other person at the other end of that who's receiving these lines has any intelligence whatsoever, that individual is going home alone that night because that's insulting. That doesn't facilitate a relationship. That reinforces negative stereotypes of someone's intention misplaced in that type of interaction. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I look at the the bigger picture, I feel that over 95% of our salespeople sell by script. And and I feel that nobody nowadays builds a rapport with the client. How can you sell based on a script? I mean, you're just repeating the words. It's no different than when you go into the car yard or you go to the hairdressers and you ask about a shampoo or conditioner. The answer is the same for everybody, irrespective of who that person is. Yeah, and, and, and anybody, we talked about this last night. Anybody who's ever called a customer service line and they had a serious problem, they were highly frustrated, and they got on the phone with someone who did not deviate from their script, no matter what they said. I mean, you could say, like, I was abducted and inappropriately touched by a gang of little green aliens, and they'll still stay on that script. That won't even deter them, and at some point, it infuriates you. So the further they stick to that, the greater the divide between you and that individual, and you associate that infuriation, that 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 um, dismissive adherence to a script as being the company, not that person. So they not only destroy the interaction, they destroy the company's reputation. Couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I've actually been in situations where people I've gone to purchase something, and this sounds quite rude, but they've started off their <laughs> script and I've stopped them halfway through the script and just said, please just get to the to the end of it because I don't want to hear the middle bit because you said that to the person that was there before and you said it to the person that was here yesterday. I, I just want to know what's in it for me and what am I going to get out of mm-hmm. it. So how do we how do we inspire club owners to throw out the scripts and how do we – how do we let the club owners know that they are quite capable of meeting their consumers' needs without a script? How, how do we do that? How do we teach them? Because you and I both know that in the years to come, that if club owners don't start to change the way that they that they produce their, their sales teams, that they're going to lose their, part, their, their place in the marketplace. And the more on-trend modern boxes that are now coming out there are going to overpower our independent club owners because they won't change their ways. How can we help them? How can we do this? Again, that's another really big and critical question that we need to explore. But I, I think you need to be sensitive, first of all, to the fact that people are operating, especially smaller business owners, they might be operating under a lot of anxiety, pressure, and fear. They've put their entire life into this. So if their company goes under, well, there are major consequences. So within any situation in life, there are fundamental concerns. And I think you need to start by teasing out and acknowledging and validating what those concerns are. So if somebody's like stuck in a process that hasn't worked in the past decade, because to be fair, the world in which old processes worked no longer exists. So the exact processes that might have worked in the past may be the same exact processes that are creating frustration and stagnation in your business in the present because they were suited 
for a completely different world. But you got to tease out what those are and you got to tease out exactly what it is that concerns these individuals the most. It's kind of like a decisional balance sheet. I did this video yesterday, so it's fresh in my mind. When you take a look at change, the reluctance of a member to change or a stakeholder or a guest to change and the reluctance of a gym owner to change, it's the same root causes. Human behavior and human motivation doesn't shift when your goals are business versus weight loss. It's the same dynamic. And in any scenario, there's only two options, right? You're either going to change or you're not going to change. Everything in between that is just a conversation. And whether you change or don't change, there's always advantages and disadvantages. Because if there weren't, if there was nothing but an advantage to changing and nothing but disadvantages to not changing, everybody would change. And all of these messy emotions <laughs> that get in the way of doing what we know we should do, they wouldn't really interfere. So when you take a look at that, the, the key is to create discrepancies. So what is it that you want to happen in your business ideally versus what is happening now? What, where's the gap and how big is that gap really? So, um, William J. Miller and Stephen Rolnick are the pioneers of motivational interviewing and they talk about creating discrepancies between your highest aspirations on the one hand, and your absolute greatest fear on the other hand. And then you have to take a look at, well, what are the disadvantages of change? Because a lot of people tell themselves a story, and it's a fear-based story. And it might look something like, well, if I engage in the process of change, what if what I'm doing isn't really working anywhere near as well as I'd like it to, but what if I replace it with something and that's even worse? I'm already struggling. And that's a valid concern. People are not wrong for having that concern. Again, especially someone who's invested so much in their own business. So the first question is, where's the evidence that that's likely to happen? Second, what if it didn't happen? What if the worst possible thing that you're imagining happening never happened? What would you do? And what are you missing out on by not adapting your business practices to the vast and rapid changes that are occurring in your marketplace all around you? And another question could be, how do you, how do we test those assumptions? So for some people, it's like, look, I'm going to take one of my fitness consultants or, or membership advisors, whatever you, know, you happen to call them, and I'm just going to test something with one person. So maybe it's not something I roll out throughout my whole team, but maybe I just take one or two people, have them collaborate and change the way we view the guest, change the way we view our culture. Because culture is everything. The late, great Peter Drucker, he wrote a book, and the title of it was just poetic. And it was Culture Eats Strategy for Breakfast. Because strategies, no matter how brilliant they are, are going to have to be modified and adapted at some point. Culture drives the behaviors of your organization. It drives the intention. And intention supersedes technique in a sales process every day of the week. You, we've all been there. I know you've been there. I've been there with someone who was so intent on driving an outcome 
that was in their best interest and it completely turned us off. And if you don't believe me, next time you walk into an electronic shop, a clothing store or a shoe shop, and the person comes up to you and says, hi, can I help you with anything today? Catch yourself really wanting to respond with, no thanks, I'm just looking. Where does that come from? It comes from the same dynamic that we put out there. I agree with that, Bobby. So I'm going to ask you a question then. What is the mindset of club owners that won't change that culture in their mind? Why is it that they won't change it? Why is it that they won't move forward? Because you and I know that the that the future for the independent club owner, based on this destructive behaviour that they have now, is only going to end in one result, and that is no business at all. We need mm-hmm. to ha- what's embedded in their mind where they won't change their mindset to change their culture. Well, it, it could it could be a few things. It could be that you know the way they learned how to run their business, the way they learned how to interact with members. Maybe it was taught to them by somebody who was a mentor. And maybe they got a great deal of success doing that personally, or at one point in in the past, it actually worked. So a large part of their identity, and I define identity by our deep sense of affiliation with someone or something, identity is one of the most deepest drivers of behavior because it's where we are derive our sense of safety, which is synonymous with safety. So if you take a look at Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, the, the, the hierarchy is flawed, <laughs> but fundamentally it does have some merit. And we are more wired to avoid pain. We are more wired for loss aversion, not just loss of things than we are to gain something or move forward. So that could be one thing. Another thing could be they're paralyzed because they're just afraid of the potential consequences that change could could bring about. Another thing is they get so much information, they're confused, and confused people do absolutely nothing. It might be a belief that they're under-resourced. They might not believe in their team because their culture doesn't cultivate that sense of solidarity within the team. And it could be they just don't know what to do. You know, they might need to go to a couple of seminars, hire a consultant. So it could be all of those things. The bigger question is, what is the level of willingness to change? Not what's their attitude towards change. What's their aptitude in the face of change? All right. So let's assume that they want change. How do we teach them or how do we, how do we teach them to relearn sales? I'm going right back to the basics here. How do we teach them to relearn sales in their culture and their club, their community? Well, I think I think it comes back to your culture. And people talk about culture, but they very seldom define it. And I believe that culture is a shared set of beliefs which implies certain rules or codes of conduct within that group or society, <laughs> hence everybody in your facility, and the behaviors that automatically ensue as a result of those beliefs and those rules. So you're going to decide as a facility, what is it that you believe? And a couple of, I'll give you an example of a couple of the cultural core beliefs. One, I'm borrowing this from one individual I worked with in the industry who I have a ton of love and respect for, and one of his core intentions was you can have 
what you truly want. So this facility isn't about a modality of training. It's not about CrossFit versus kettlebells versus cardio versus some form of resistance training modality. It is a vehicle, first and foremost, for you, the stakeholder, to have exactly what it is you want. And when I say want, I mean truly want. You can't have everything you want. When I was five years old, I really wanted a kitten, but I also wanted a pet hawk. Those two pets shouldn't go together. That's a bad situation. But everybody knows what they truly want because it's in alignment with their values and identity. Number two, my belief is greater than your doubt. Every single person that we come in contact with, my belief is greater than your doubt. I know you're just starting out. I know you can't see the end of this because you're looking to do something you've never done before which requires you becoming someone you've never been before, but we got you. When you join this facility, you get all of our effort and our commitment so we can do everything within our power to hold you up, support you, and eliminate or at least alleviate the things that threaten your progress so you will not fail. You are not joining a facility. You are joining a community. That's a second core belief related to culture. And another one that I've seen work out really well is some degree of there's nothing wrong with you. Listen, I don't care what you've been told. I don't care what you read on social media. You don't lack discipline, willpower, character, work ethic. The, the one thing you lack is alignment between what it is that you truly value and what it is you're doing in relation to exercise and how that supports those values. Great things are achieved when visions and values are aligned. So that's an example of three core cultural beliefs. And from there, you restructure every component of your sales process, which is basically connecting with somebody, establishing rapport. Then you have to find a problem. Then you have to solve a problem. And then you have to ask for a decision that allows somebody to take the first steps towards transforming. So if they don't completely eradicate the problem, they can at least rise above it. So it's about rapport, find, fulfill, ask. Those are four basic steps. So you could start to restructure your whole sales process around your core beliefs that make up your culture. And then you could start having a real conversation with everyone who comes into the facility. And when I say real conversation, it's an acronym. Could you imagine every single person who comes into the facility, Mel, your people are not sitting there going, oh my God, I got I to hit budget. No kidding, you got to hit budget. But if you bring that anxiety and your personal want into that interaction, a couple of things happen. One, you're in the future. You're 15 minutes in the future. Hopefully the tour lasts that long. But you're 15 minutes in the future thinking about your needs. You are missing what that person is saying and who they are being in the present. By the time you get there, all you could do is fall back on a script because you've been absent for that whole conversation. That's number one. Number two, by the time you get there, you have so much anxiety about your personal concerns. You're blind to the concerns and the motivations of the person who came in to see you that day. And you are done because by the time you come back from a tour, if you have not met people's four basic needs and the four basic human needs, the questions people are asking, not out loud, but to themselves is number one, am I safe here? 
Number two, do I belong in this type of facility? Is this the environment and culture for me? Number three, am I important to this person? And number four, am I inspired by this individual? And if the answer to those questions are no, by the time they come back from the tour, you're done at the desk. You could practice overcoming objections as much as you want. At that point, it's a battle of sheer force of will. You're going to lose it more often than not. And there's no way that there's a script with the right magic combination of words and phrases and incantations, unless you've just hired Harry Potter, that's going to help you out of that situation. But I, I agree with you wholeheartedly there, Bobby. I'm going to throw a spanner in the works now. So, uh oh. So, do you think that club owners get confused between beliefs, emotion, and they think that culture is materialistic items in their club? Hmm. So, so is it is it more about the tool or what we're doing versus who we're being? Is 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 that what you're asking? Yep. Sometimes. Sometimes, not, not, not all the times. I mean, I've, you know, especially, and I'm, I'm not saying this against any size company, but especially in smaller businesses, I have met some truly inspiring owners. There are some, like yourself, crazy cool owners out there that are in it because they not only want to make a living, they want to make a difference. Um, but then th- there, there are other people who, yeah, they, they might have they might have been really passionate about a certain modality, and they probably had Michael Gerber calls this an entrepreneurial seizure, um, where they thought I'm going to get into this because this really works for me. So it becomes about the thing. It becomes about that modality, and and there's nothing wrong with being passionate about a modality, but I think it's more powerful and more influential. When you're detached from that and all of your tools and how you combine them is completely based on the transformation of the individual. And I, I think sometimes there is, there is a divide. And I've, you see that more commonly with trainers where sometimes trainers get into it and they completely connect to somebody and they're able to extract from that individual more than they put in. And because people do things for their deep-seated reasons and not ours, those individuals are far more responsive to those trainers. And then you have other trainers who might be completely indexed on the technical aspects of what it is they do. And they have multiple certifications. They have extraordinary technical competency and they struggle to attain and retain clients because if you cut that relationship with a knife, it won't bleed. They're under the misconception that what they're doing is training a human body, but rather they're training the human being that resides within it. And I think that's critical. And and, and here's – people might say, well, what does this have to do with selling? But this has everything to do with selling. If you would imagine – the person walking through your front door, being someone who you really care about, but you haven't seen that person for years, but you don't miss a beat. You have mates like that, right? We all yep. do, where you haven't seen them in years, but the second you see them, it's like, wow, 
No time has passed. Imagine that person invited you out for coffee. And when you sat down, you know, they, there's usually small talk. There was none of that. They cut right to the chase. And they said, Mel, I, I know, you know, I know you're in the business. And this person lives in another country. So you couldn't sign them up. There's nothing you could personally do to help them. And they say, but, you know, I've had brain fog. I'm struggling on my job because we have to learn new systems, new tools. My industry's changing so fast. I feel like I can't keep up. I'm actually worried for my financial future. I feel exhausted. I've got to drag myself through the day and I keep gaining weight no matter what I try to do. Nothing seems to be working. And I try to go out and educate myself, but there's so much conflicting information. I don't know what course of action is right for me. I was just hoping, you know, I know I haven't seen you for a while, but I was just hoping I could pick your brain a little bit and maybe you can help me make a decision. And if you approach selling like that, where that person could sign up or not sign up. It doesn't affect your income, right? That, that person is not someone who you need them to decide, but because of the space you hold for them, because of what that person represents to you, you are completely invested in their problem. You would ask a lot of questions rather than trying to jump to information. You wouldn't unload everything you know on this individual. You would ask questions when it's appropriate to ask questions. You would push back when they give you a line of bullshit and you do it respectfully and empathetically, but directly. And you would ask them to make a decision because you would feel out of a sense of love, concern, and quite frankly, deep rooted personal responsibility that you had to ask them to take that first step, that first action that could lead them to transforming their situation from being tragic to magic one year from that conversation. And that's the mentality. So if you approach somebody right there with that mindset from the second they walked into the facility, that would help you connect with people. And then, yes, of course, from there, there's specific processes. There's exactly what do you ask? How do you tour? Because how you tour and what you talk about, and I think equally important, what you do not talk about on that tour is highly influential to what decision is going to result or not result. Yeah, I agree with that. And we touched base on that on that yesterday about the tour. And I, I think that we probably need to do a podcast on its own just on the tour of the, of the club. But I want to ask you something, Bobby. You, you said tragic to magic. So... The future of sales in not just health clubs, but in PT studios, where do you see that going over the next three or four years? Well, I think if you take a look at um, any dynamic that's growing, right? If you take a look at where the trends are heading, it seems to be based around group participation. Now, group exercise is not for everyone. I am not going to jump on that bandwagon and say everybody needs to get involved in group, but it's not a matter of the modality of group exercise. It's around the behavioral and environmental influencers of change that group exercise presents. So group could be, you know, it could be a soul cycle. It could be a boot camp. It, it could be a studio up the street where they engage in, in small group training. And you kind of, you're seeing an extraordinary rate of growth within those domains. And I think it's for a very good reason. There are a lot of misconceptions about why people join a gym and why people change or don't change. 
you know, in, in every cycle of change, there's basically five phases. So James Petraska and Di Clementi, they are pioneers of the trans-theoretical model of change. This is important to understand. In the early phases of change, we try to motivate people with results and outcomes, yet they don't have the level of self-efficacy. And what I mean by self-efficacy is an individual's belief in their ability to initiate and perpetuate a series of decisions that are in correspondence with an outcome. And because they have a low sense of self-efficacy, the more we talk about achievement, where they have a past history, not to mention a mental narrative of failure and struggle, the more terrified they become. So it's really participation. It's behaviors, measurable things they do and engage in daily that are predictors of who they're going to become permanently. So you have social evidence in a group. You also have fun and enjoyment. You have oxytocin that's released. You have neurotransmitters related to bliss. You have a high release of dopamine, which is related to motivation, as well as serotonin, which decreases the emotional states like fear, anger, anxiety, worry that are usually constraints or roadblocks to people continuing within a course of action that's in their best interests. So group exercise creates a physiological environment as well as support. Support is one of the greatest determining factors of whether somebody is going to be engaged in your facility or in anything, any area of life. Six months from now, six weeks from now, or six days from now. As a matter of fact, on my tours, I used to always ask, who's your greatest source of support? Who, who encourages you the most related to your health and fitness goals? And th this covers a couple of things. One, it deals with the, I have to go ask. I have to go ask, you know, my partner, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, if this is a good decision for me, because all of that is valid. I mean, I remember uh, my, th there's two parts to this story, and we talked about the first part yesterday, but I remember when my, um, when my partner, she left the gym, which she said was too much money because it was 30 bucks a month, and she didn't want to spend the 30 bucks a month, so she went to another facility, and she spent $125 a month. So that's another takeaway. I think a lot of times we break things down to price. People are not sensitive to high price or sensitive to low value. But when she was in this yoga studio, not going to mention the name of it, before she signed the agreement, the very first thing she did was ring me. And she asked me two questions. Should I do this? And will you do this with me? And my answer was a resounding, absolutely yes. And no way. Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm about as flexible as a crowbar. I don't, be I don't belong in a yoga studio just yet. Or maybe some people say that that's probably why you do belong there. But was she asking for my permission? No. What she was saying is, oh, my God, I'm really excited about doing this, but I've never signed up for a place like this before. Oh, do you support me, love? Of course I do. So that is a very valid concern. But by addressing support, time, urgency early on in the tour, it has less impact and probability of coming up during the close. And, and, if, you're and if, you're, if you can address who that person is, and you can ask them, in what ways does this individual 
actively support your goals. And how does that impact you? You've resolved that. But what you'll also find is a lot of people will say, you know what? Nah, nobody's really actively supporting me. This is something that I kind of feel like I'm on my own. That comes up and that's a great opportunity to say, you know what? You're not alone. First thing you need to understand is that's common, which is why every facet of our culture is built with entry points into group type settings where we create a community of support and mutual encouragement because the research, and you can say this with confidence, there's a lot of empirical evidence to support this. The research says that the greater amount of support you have, the greater the likelihood of your success. And the way that enhances your chances is profound, which is why we have built our culture the way we have. That's a powerful thing to say on a tour. And, you know, Bobby, it's not just in the in the clubs. I mean, that goes, you know, in, in life in general. Don't you agree with that? I mean, the more support you have, the more successful you can be. It, it, you know, D, Dr. Dean Ornish um, took two groups that whose bypass surgery was imminent. And he basically put one group together and he, all he did was give these people in this group information and, you know, healthy eating habits, stress reduction, all the things that you would normally expect. The other group, he, he didn't intercede at all. He gave them no resources. All he did was put these people together in a support network where they could organically discuss their own issues related to health or related to anything. And what he found was nearly two-thirds of the people who were in the support group who received no information, no education, no sheets, no diagrams, they did not need bypass surgery. They changed their habits as a group collectively and they had an astonishing low level of recidivism five years out. So support is probably one of the greatest determining factors of your ability to do anything long-term. It is extremely powerful now. It certainly, it certainly is. So, Bobby, just before we finish our podcast, and I do have a couple of other quick questions to ask you towards the end. Where do you see the future heading for independent club owners if they don't make these shifts? Well, if you take a look at where people are going when they leave, they're either doing absolutely nothing or they're getting involved in one of these far more expensive yet far more immersive types of experiences. And I think what we need to understand is that people don't want memberships. We want to sell memberships, but they don't want memberships. When I go to a hardware store and I buy a drill, it's not because I want a power tool. I want a little hole in a wall. The power tool is a necessary evil. It's a means to an end. Now, if we keep trying to dictate the way that these people engage and enter into the fitness industry, despite the implicit, in some cases, very explicit protests or, or, or behaviors that would suggest the contrary, it puts us in a quite precarious position. And I know there are health club chains out there. I know there are businesses out there that are running faster and faster every quarter, every year to stay in place. And they keep having a conversation around the close, like it's the last 
few minutes of the interaction that's broken. And in the past 30 to 40 years in the fitness industry, nobody's come around with a solution to how to effectively overcome objections. And the second we get that, we can script that, that problem is going to be solved. Are you kidding me? That is absurd. So I, I think for here's, here's the two-sided coin for this. Yes, everybody is in a lot of trouble if we keep ignoring the trends and the shifts in society and our market and what our market wants. But if you're a small business, it's kind of like if, if I'm a company and I have a few hundred locations, great, because I'm impacting a lot of people. So I think the health club chains, they, they serve a lot of individuals and well done there. But the reality is, if they see danger in the future, like an like like a um, you know iceberg, it takes a long time to turn that ship around and avert the danger. Where if you're a small business, you're not driving the Queen Mary there, are you? You're kind of analogous to being in a speedboat. So there is an opportunity to completely shift. I like that. I really do. It's been such an awesome podcast this afternoon and I know that you and I could both talk for a lot longer on all of these issues in the industry at the moment. But I love I'm, chatting to you, Mel. <laughs> but I'm going to shift it now. So we're going to have 60 seconds of the three hot questions and we're going to ask you, are you ready for this? All I right. don't know. I think you'll be fine. You'll be fine. So let's learn a little bit about Bobby. Bobby, your favorite book that you've read in 2017, what was that? Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. I know that sounds weird. I No, no, we're learning all about you. I like that. Okay. Your My fav- second favorite is Fight Club. I have oh, to no, no, you only, la- you only lab one. Only lab one. Oh, oh that's okay. That's okay. Okay, More so. More rubbish at this. <laughs> Question number two, your favorite food. Don't have a favorite food, but if I had to live on a really proper curry for the rest of my life, I reckon I could get by. Okay, so the Wicked Witch and the Curry. All right, and your favorite <laughs> quote. Your favorite quote to go with both of those. Oh, my God. My, my former client is going to hate me for this, but it is Benjamin Zander, the great conductor. I accept as a minimum criteria the maximum capacity that people have. I consider myself to be a relentless architect of the possibilities of human beings. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with us this afternoon. It's been a pleasure to share time with you. So, Bobby, do tell us where our listeners can can find you. I've checked your website out and it's pretty amazing. So if you could let the guys know where they can get a hold of you. Yeah, well, I'm on social media. Mostly the platforms I use are Instagram um, and Facebook. Um, I have a little bit of activity on LinkedIn. And you can find me at www.robertcappuccio.com. Cappuccio is spelled exactly like cappuccino without the N. And if you click on Bobby Cappuccio University, that's where I house all the information about coaching-based leadership and selling. As I said, Bobby, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. I look forward to Thanks, speaking Mel. to you in the next podcast. Have a fantastic day. You too. Bye. 
Thank you for joining the Gym Owners Podcast, sponsored and supported by National Fitness Business Alliance and Gym Click Media. Find Mel Tempest on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Join us next time for the Gym Owners Podcast.